Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. This is a special holiday Christmas episode um, that I am doing solo, and I am answering the historical question, did St. Nicholas slap Arius at the Council of Nicaea? And the answer is no. If that's all you clicked on to find out, uh, well, now you have your answer. But if you want to find out more about who St. Nicholas was, what we do know about his life, where did this legend come from, um, what did happen to Arius at the Council of Nicaea, what happened to Arius after the Council of Nicaea, which honestly is more interesting than getting slapped by Santa Claus, uh, stick around and find out. Hopefully this episode won't be too long, although I always tend to go longer than I expect. Um, but this is just a short little Christmas special for all of you. Um, I think that if you're like me and you have a very theologically nerdy social media feed, around this time of year, you see a lot of memes like this. It's time to give presents and punch heretics, and I'm all out of presents. And you see a picture of St. Nicholas or uh, Homo Usius with Santa punching a guy. Deck the halls, try deck the heretic. Uh, St. Nicholas slaps Arius for blasphemy, colorized, and you see uh, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, and they have like funny bishop hat on. Uh, my name is Arius, and then you see someone else. My name is St. Nick, and I'm here to slap a heretic. And um, this is generally considered humorous. Um, I think that a lot of people probably maybe have doubts in their mind as to whether this is historically accurate or not, or maybe they just assume that they've seen enough memes that they think it is historically accurate. Uh, I'm here to try and dig in and answer this question for you so you don't have to do it yourself. So my first uh, thing that I'll say is, what do we know about the Council of Nicaea and how do we know it? We actually know a decent amount about the Council of Nicaea. I would say that the fourth century and the fifth century of Christian history provide us with like the largest sum total of Christian documents until you get to the late Middle Ages. There was a lot of people writing and a lot of people keeping track of stuff back then, uh, way more so than in the anti-Nicene period. And so we actually know quite a bit about the Council of Nicaea, and a lot of our information comes from firsthand sources of people who are actually there. Uh, one of the biggest sources is Eusebius of Caesarea. He wrote a big book called Church History. He also wrote other books like the Oration of Constantine and a bunch of other things that help uh, give us information about the Council of Nicaea. And he was one of the main leaders at the council. I think he probably even gave like the opening address at the council. He was a very prominent church person at the time. And so we know a lot of information from him. Uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, he also writes a lot of books and works after the council. He was actually not very important at the council himself. Some people think Athanasius was one of the leaders at the council. That's not true. He was actually a young priest who was a assistant to his bishop, Alexander. He was probably in his mid to late 20s or something like that at the council, so he wasn't actually that prominent, but he was there, and we do know things about the council from Athanasius. Of course, we have the creed and its anathemas and canons, and then we also have a lot of letters and smaller works from other various people who are there. 
um, afterwards and letters that get sent from the council to the churches or letters discussing the ramifications of the council afterwards. And so we have, you know, a pile of small documents and stuff like that. And then we have sort of later Christian historians like Socrates of Constantinople writing a big book and talking a lot about the Council of Nicaea about 100 years afterwards and stuff like that. So we have a pretty good pile of documents that can give us a relatively clear understanding of what was going on. We don't have like daily meeting minute notes or something like that the way we might like, but we can get a pretty good sense of the flavor of what happened, who the major characters were, what the major decisions were, who was jostling for this idea, who was jostling for this position, et cetera. And I should say that none of these works whatsoever mention St. Nicholas slapping Arius. And in fact, none of these works whatsoever even mention St. Nicholas being at the council. Uh, we certainly know Arius was at the council, like 100% historical certainty that Arius was there, but uh, not a lot of historical certainty that uh, Nicholas was there. And nothing said about any slapping incident whatsoever. And I think that would be one of those things that would be so notable that someone would have written it down somewhere. And in fact, there probably would have been a lot of writers that would have liked to brag about that happening to Arius afterwards, like Athanasius would have found that something to comment on. So there's very little reason to think that that happened and a lot of reason to think that it didn't. So then the question is, so where, if that art idea of St. Nicholas slapping Arius doesn't come from any of like the kind of close primary or secondary sources that we have on the council, where does this idea come from? So I've been trying to track this down the best that I can and looking at what various church writers have said about St. Nicholas. And so here in about 320 or 330 AD, a guy named Theodore the Lector is writing and he says, Nicholas of Myra is listed as attending the Council of Nicaea. All right, but he is uh, there. So this Theodore provides a list of the people at the Council of Nicaea, but it should be noted that this list of people at the council is in discrepancy with some earlier lists of people at the council. And some scholars suspect that it's an interpolation to put St. Nicholas on that list. And this list is being made about 200 years afterwards. So the first list that has Nicholas even being at the council is 200 years after the fact and has uh, some questionable historicity to it. All right, a guy named Michael the Archimandrite is writing in the ninth century. And he says, and he, Nicholas, ministered the gospel of grace and perfect orthodoxy, apostolically teaching them to worship God the Father and his only born word and son, our Lord and God Jesus Christ, and the spirit in equal power to him, nor that their divine and uncreated perfect divinity divided into three alien and unrelated essences because of the triple personhood as accursed Arius would have it. So this is actually the first document that I could find that mentions Nicholas and Arius in the same passage. But notice what's interesting. It doesn't say that Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. It just said that he taught orthodox teaching 
unlike Arius. And Nicholas, I'll cover what we do know about Nicholas in a little bit, but Nicholas was living at the time of the Council of Nicaea and at the time of the Arian controversy. So for later hagiographers, it would be important for them to state whether he was Arian or anti-Arian. And so this Michael right in the ninth century states that he was perfectly orthodox and opposed the teaching or did not agree with the teachings of Arius. But he's not at the council, nor does it say he met Arius or slapped Arius or anything like that. All right, move on a little bit further. There's a work called the Vita Compolita, which is sort of like a compilation of lives of the saints. And it says, he also said such things in the first great synod in Nicaea to those being assembled against Arius the impious, according to the faith and preaching of the great and all-famed apostles. So this uh, hagiography of him in the ninth or 10th century says that he spoke against Arianism at the Council of Nicaea. So this is the first instance we have of Nicholas interacting with Arius at the Council of Nicaea, although this is like 600-ish years after the fact. All right, even a little bit later, Simeon the Metaphrast writes in the 10th century, the admirable Nicholas helped to bring this about as a member of the sacred synod, that is Nicaea, and he strenuously resisted the casistry of Arius, reducing to not his every tenant. So here we have uh, Nicholas arguing with Arius and refuting his every tenant, but no mention of any slap or physical transgression. Okay. In 1275, a guy named Jacobus de Varingeni or Varingen or something like that is writing a book called The Golden Legend, which is, like, again, I think some sort of compilation of hagiographies. It is read in a chronicle that the blessed Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea, and on a day as a ship with mariners were perishing on the sea, they prayed and required devoutly Nicholas, servant of God, saying, if those things that we have heard of thee said be true, prove them now. Okay, so there are some sailors who are praying to St. Nicholas to save their ship, and they talk about Nicholas being at the Council of Nicaea. All right, a little bit later, in somewhere between 370 and 1400 AD, Petrus the de Natalibus is writing, it happened that St. Nicholas, now an old man, was present at the Council of Nicaea, and out of jealousy of faith struck a certain Arian in the jaw, on account of which it is recorded that he was deprived of his mitre and polyum, and on account of which he is often depicted without a mitre. All right, so um, this is saying that uh, St. Nicholas was, he struck a certain Arian. You'll notice it doesn't even say Arius himself, just struck a certain Arian on the jaw and that he was punished for this at the Council of Nicaea. All right, so it's like, okay, we're getting a little bit closer. We've got more strong associations between Arius and Nicholas at the Council, but still no actual account of a slap happening. All right, so this is actually the first one that I could find in history, and other historians have looked at this question and agreed that this is like the first document that describes Nicholas slapping Arius. And so this was written between 1550 AD and 1600 AD by a Greek monk named Damaskinos, the monk. All right, so it says, after the king seated himself on the throne, 
159 fathers seated themselves at either side of him, both they and Arius arguing with much unease. St. Nicholas, noticing that Arius was about to quash all the archpriests and moved by design, divine zeal, rose up and gave him a slap that shook all his members. Complaining, Arius says to the king, O oh, most just king, is it fair before your royal highness for one to strike another? If he has something to say, let him speak as the other fathers do. If he is ignorant, let him remain silent as his like are. For what reason does he slap me in the presence of your highness? Hearing this, the king was greatly disappointed and said to the archpriests, Holy archpriests, it is the law that whosoever raises his hand before the king to strike someone, that it should be cut off. I leave this to you so that your holiness might be the judge. The archpriest replied, saying, Your majesty, that the archpriest has acted wrongfully, all of us confess it, except that we beseech you, let his unstate let us unstate him now and imprison him, and after the dissolution of the council, we shall then convict him. Having unstated and imprisoned him, that night Christ and the Holy Mother Theotokos appeared in prison and said, Nicholas, why are you imprisoned? And the saint replied, For loving you. Christ then said to him, Take this, and gave him the Holy Gospel. The Holy Mother Theotokos gave him the archpriestly omophorion, or a scapulcher, scapular, the next day, some acquaintances of him brought him bread, and they saw that he was freed of his feathers, and on his shoulder he was wearing the omophorion. While reading the Holy Gospel, he was holding in his hands. Having asked him where he found them, he told them the whole truth. And having learnt of this, the king took him out of the prison and asked for forgiveness, as did all the others. After the dissolution of the council, all the archpriests returned home, as did St. Nicholas to his... So this is the first historical um, record of uh, St. Nicholas having slapped Arius, and it is written at least 1,200 years, almost 1,300 years after the council actually happened. And I think you can see that it's in sort of a chain of various hagiographical accounts that slowly kind of build up upon themselves. But even then, this, this account's kind of interesting because... You know, it, it depicts it as a unlawful thing to do to strike someone in the presence of the king and that uh, Nicholas is about to get punished for this, but then has the intervention of Jesus and Mary to protect him from this intervention. So it's an interesting story and one could see how it would stick in people's heads. But I think that the historical reliability of the story is very um, faint, I'll say. And then I even found this um, writing. This is from the 19th century. Although the most kindly and charitable of men, St. Nicholas had a temper and once gave very conclusive proof of the fact in the presence of 300 bishops. It was at the great Nicene Council, which was summoned for the purpose of putting Arius the heretic to shame. This Arius, in the course of his defense, spoke of sacred per personages with such scant reverence that the saint lost all patience and, springing to his feet, boxed his ears soundly. So this, this uh, accounting of the events from the 19th century doesn't even have Nicholas slap Arius. It just has him jump up and cover his own ears because he can't stand the sound of Arius's teaching and blasphemy. So it's not like this idea was immediately taken up and agreed upon all versions of the story. So that's another interesting data point. 
So what can we know about St. Nicholas? And I think we can know a decent amount about St. Nicholas, but not a ton. Um, there are multiple accounts that he was born in Patara, which is in Lycia, uh, probably sometime in the late third century. We don't know exactly for sure, but he is depicted as having been a bishop and a grown man during the time of Constantine. So that would put his birthday probably sometime in the late 200s. Uh, Patara is in southwest Turkey. Um, it is uh, in basically where the Aegean Sea meets the Mediterranean Sea. I should actually say that on my honeymoon, my wife and I rented a sailboat and were sailing around southwestern Turkey and sailed very, very close to the city where St. Nicholas was born. I didn't know that at the time, though. All right. Um, he seemed, so Nicholas seems to have been most active during the Constantinian period. Um, the little information that we have about him that seems prehistorical puts him active in that early 4th century time. And he probably died in Myra, which is another city in Lycia, a little bit east of there, sometime around 340. And multiple accounts, basically all the information that we have agrees that he was the bishop of Myra. So he was a bishop in the church. Um, but Myra was not a particularly big city or a particularly important city. It was like a medium, small sort of place. And so he, you know, had a, a important church position, but not an extremely important church position. And um, shortly after his death, uh, miracles became associated with his name and relics, and his grave became something of a pilgrimage site for um, various uh, requests of miracles and intervention. An anonymous letter written sometime around 400 AD attributes the saving of three innocent men from execution to St. Nicholas's intervention. Uh, these people were going to be put to death in Myra in St. Nicholas's own city. But uh, St. Nicholas appears in a vision to Constantine while he's alive. St. Nicholas isn't dead and in heaven. He's on earth. And he appears to a vision in Constantine, in, in, to Constantine and threatens Constantine with divine punishment if he doesn't pardon these innocent men. And then Constantine pardons them and all is well. Um, Bishop Proclus of Constantinople tells a similar story in 440 AD. But what's interesting in both of the stories, Constantine does not recognize St. Nicholas, which suggests that St. Nicholas was not at the Council of Nicaea, because this vision would most likely make sense on the timeline as being after the Council of Nicaea. I'll cover that in a minute. And neither of these men think that Constantine should recognize St. Nicholas when he appears to Constantine in a vision. St. Nicholas has to introduce himself to Constantine in this vision. So the earliest sources pre present information that would seemingly um, be unlikely for St. Nicholas to have been at the Council of Nicaea. So that's that's interesting. All right, so to give a little bit of timeline of what's going on at this time to help put St. Nicholas in context and then also put what I'm about to say about Arius in context. Uh, Constantine the Great, he was born 272 AD. He was born to a Caesar of the West. Now it should be said, like during this time, there was what's called the Tetrarchy, the rule of four. And in the Western half of the empire, there was an Augustus who was the chief leader of the Western half. 
And underneath the Augustus, there was a Caesar who was almost like vice president, you could almost think of it as, who was the, the ruler in waiting underneath the Augustus. So, um, so uh, Constantine's father was one of the most important people, in the, one of the four most important people in the empire at the time that Constantine was around. Um, but there was also an Augustus in the east and a Caesar underneath that Augustus in the east as well. So in 312 AD, uh, so what had happened is, you know, some Augustuses and Caesars had died and there was a battle over who was going to be the next Augustus of the West. And this battle was the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where uh, Constantine is attacking Rome, where his rival is um, uh, protected inside the city. And uh, Constantine wins sort of an underdog victory and becomes the Augustus of the West. That doesn't mean he's the emperor of the whole empire. He's just the ruler of the Western part of the empire at this point in time. And um, there are multiple accounts that say that he had received a vision prior to this battle where this heavenly figure um, tells Constantine to conquer under the sign Cairo. And this is sometimes interpreted as a Christian vision, although not all the accounts of this vision put it in Christian terms. It's sort of, Constantine is a complex figure. As sort of the first emperor who embraces Christianity, there is honestly this kind of weird in-between period where some of the things he does seem still pagan and some of the things he does seem Christian. And it's a little bit hard to make sense of, and it's a little bit hard to tell who's telling the truth about what Constantine's real convictions were. But I don't think it's like a locked down historical fact that Constantine immediately converts to Christianity because of this vision, or if he even interpreted it as being Jesus who was speaking to him. He probably, it's entirely possible he interpreted this through a pagan reference at the time. Um, but in any case, Constantine was very aware of Christianity and had some family members who were Christian and did strongly disliked religious persecution. One thing that I have to say in Constantine's favor is that he very much seemed to be a believer in something that we would recognize as religious freedom, that he think that people should follow their own consciences and make up their own minds, and that the best way to get people to change their mind from wrong opinions is persuasion and seeking after the truth, as opposed to violent persecution. So in 313 AD, he issues the Edict of Milan, which grants Christianity a tolerated place in the empire. It does not make Christianity the official religion. It just makes it no longer a persecuted religion and that it's in, able to enjoy some of the same privileges that other religions like paganism and Judaism have been able to enjoy. Um, but again, he's not the emperor yet. He's the Augustus of the West. So after a little bit more period of battles in 324 AD, the Augustus of the East surrenders to Constantine and uh, Constantine is declared the emperor of the whole empire, east and west, together. I should say that later that same year, the Augustus of the East has surrendered in exchange for his life being spared. But the next year, Constantine uh, accuses him of treason and executes him. So uh, I'm not quite sure if he deserved that execution or not. But uh, the very next year, after Constantine is emperor, he calls the Council of Nicaea, and it's very clear that um, Constantine's motivation for calling this council was that he wanted unity in the church. And in fact, basically, I think almost all of Constantine's motivations, whether political, military, or theological, can be seen and understood as Constantine seeking after unity 
and theological unity was required in order to have political unity and in, required in order to have military unity and vice versa. So when he's becoming the sole unchallenged emperor of the whole uh, Roman Empire, that is very parallel to him trying to establish a single religion. Um, although it's not the case that he's really trying to make Christianity the sole single religion of the empire at this point in time yet. But I do think that he is hoping for paganism to die out. Um, I should also say that Constantine had been raised in a monotheistic form of paganism called, uh, basically he worshipped a god called Sol Invictus growing up and was very influenced by Neoplatonist uh, uh, philosophy. And so I honestly think probably one of the best ways to make sense of Constantine's somewhat confusing religious ideas and commitments is that he was something like a very philosophical perennialist monotheist who came to understand that Christianity and the best ideas of paganism were basically saying the same things as each other and that they were both kind of true as various versions of the same absolute monotheistic idea and that he was sort of a perennialist and like different monotheisms probably are more or less the same equally true thing. And that this is a recurring idea throughout human history, that there's only one God and that you shouldn't worship him with idols and stuff like that. So it's interesting. He thought that both as pagan and kind of as a Christian, and that helps explain why there's this blurriness between his paganness and his Christianity is because he views them as sort of different expressions of the same thing. Um, I think that's probably the best way to understand what Constantine's own religious ideas were. Um, so uh, in 330, he moves the capital to Constantinople. That was a big deal. It took a couple. He originally had wanted to have the Council of, of Nicaea at Constantinople, but Constantinople, the construction was running behind schedule. So he had to have the Council of, uh, at Nicaea, which was basically like his lake house outside the city of Constantinople. Um, and he was baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia in, in 337 AD, right before he died. He was on his deathbed and then requested a deathbed baptism. And there are various opinions as to why. I think it's pretty reasonable to say that Constantine suspected that he would have to do violent things um, that were not very befitting of a Christian. And so he saves his baptism for later. And, you know, okay, Sam, you were saying you serve a perennialist. Do perennialists get baptized? And they, do they view that as important? And I do think that Constantine kind of grows in his commitment to Christianity over time. Um, and I think you can see that by his baptism. Uh, although I should say Eusebius and Nicomedia, the one who baptizes him, is an Arian bishop. So uh, we will cover what that means in a second. So um, this is a quote that I want to read. This is Constantine giving an address to the Council of Nicaea. And this is sort of his summary statement and closing remarks at the end of the council. Um, and I think you can see a lot about Constantine's own theology and beliefs inside this quote. Um, Lastly, Plato himself, the gentlest and most refined of all, who first essayed to draw men's thoughts from sensible to intellectual and eternal objects and taught them to aspire to sublimer speculations, in the first place declared with truth a God exalted above every essence. But to him he also added a second, distinguishing them numerically as two, though both possessing one perfection. And the being of the second God proceeding from the first. 
for he is the creator and controller of the universe and evidently supreme, while the second, as the obedient agent of his commands, refers the origin of all creation to him as the cause. In accordance, therefore, with the soundest reason, we may say that there is one being whose care and providence are over all things, even God the Word, who has ordered all things. But the Word, being God himself, is also the Son of God. For by what name can we designate him except by this title of the Son, without falling into the most grievous error? For the Father of all things is properly considered the Father of his own word. Thus far, then, Plato's sentiment, uh, uh, sentiments were sound. So in uh, Constantine's own theology, which he says is also attributable to Plato, again, you sort of get that pagan, Christian, syncretic, perennialist monotheism thing going on. There's one big God who's evidently supreme over the whole universe, and then there is a second God. He literally uses the phrase second God to describe the logos or the son of God who comes into being from the first God and is subordinate to him and obeys all of his commands as an obedient agent and that sort of thing. So there's one big super transcendent God and then this logo son of God figure who is the second God who does the big God's commands and they possess the same perfection. So that is Constantine's theology at the Council of Nicaea. This is not Trinitarianism. This is not Orthodox Trinitarianism. This is something kind of similar, honestly, to what most people think Arius believed, but a little bit different. And I think that the differences between Constantine and Arius, would Arius would not have agreed that the first God and the second God would have possessed the same perfection. That is, I think, what Constantine would mean by the term homoousius or same substance or consubstantial. And so I think Arius would have said that the first God was slightly more perfect in a way that the second wasn't, whereas Constantine would say that they possess the same perfection. But he doesn't, Constantine doesn't think that the first God and the second God are two persons within the same being. He thinks that they are two different beings, two different gods, numerically distinct gods that possess the same perfection. Uh, and Constantine doesn't really talk about the Holy Spirit at all very much, really. Um, if you want to learn more about Constantine, I would recommend this book, Constantine and the Divine Mind by Keegan Chandler, uh, The Quest for Primitive Mono, The Imperial Quest for Primitive Monotheism. I think it's one of the best books written about Constantine's own theology. Um, I also interviewed Keegan. You can hear that on my channel. Um, I, uh, Hank and I also did an episode on Constantine and our Church Fathers series. And uh, I also interviewed Dr. Richard Rubenstein. He wrote a really good book. Uh, called the uh, um, how Jesus became or when Jesus became God, excuse me, that uh, I would highly recommend uh, also if you want to learn more about Constantine. All right, so what about Arius? So Arius was, oh, let's see here. Um, Arius was born sometime around 250 AD in Cyrene in Libya. And uh, he, so this is like Northern Libya, kind of near the city that we would call Benghazi. Um, we know next to nothing about Arius's early life, except that he seems to have been very well educated and very theologically astute. He probably studied under a guy named Lucian of Antioch, who was a very prominent theologian in the late third century, but it's hard to know that for sure. Um, in 313 AD, Alexander gets elected bishop of Alexandria. 
So there are some people who think that Alexander and Arius had been professional rivals and that they had both been priests wanting to become bishop. And that when Alexander becomes bishop, Arius is maybe a little bit jealous of this and feels like he had deserved the job. Um, but Arius is a priest at the perhaps the most prominent or important church in Alexandria. You could call it like the downtown church, like basically the church equivalent to the big fancy hoity-toity church in the middle of the city. And Alexandria at this point was one of the biggest cities in the world, almost a million people, very educated, very wealthy by the standards of its day. Um, in 318 AD, Alexander, the bishop, gives a series of sermons to a gathering of clergymen in Alexandria. And in these sermons, he highly elevates the son to a status that seems very equal to God the Father. Arius is bothered by these sermons. He thinks this theology is incorrect. And he offers a series of counter sermons um, and perhaps writes some letters countering the theology that Alexander is teaching. Arius gets excommunicated for doing this, and he flees to Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea is a city on the west coast of modern-day Israel. It's actually mentioned in the New Testament a couple times. The reason why he flees to Caesarea is Eusebius of Caesarea is the bishop there, and Eusebius is one of Arius's friends. Eusebius is one of the most widely respected church people in the world at this time. So Arius probably flees to him because he thinks that Eusebius is powerful enough to keep him safe and is likely to agree with him in this theological conflict that's happening. So in 325 AD, as I already mentioned, um, uh, Constantine calls the Council of Nicaea, and this council rules against Arius. This had been one of the biggest questions at the council was this feud going on in Alexandria that was starting to involve other parts of the empire, and various theologians were lining up either on Arius' side or against Arius. And so the Council of Nicaea issues a creed, and the creed and the anathemas have language that is very specifically targeted at the that Arius had wrote. And so they targeted him in such a way that they knew he wouldn't be able to agree with the creed. Arius and two of his friends refused to agree with the creed and are exiled. Although I should say Eusebius of Caesarea, who is one of Arius's closest allies, and Eusebius of Nicomedia, who's also one of Arius's closest allies, actually affirmed the creed at the Council of Nicaea. So there was a way that savvy Arians could affirm it either by not totally meaning the same thing as everyone else or, you know, find some wiggle room in the language that they could find a way to agree with it. But Arius doesn't do that, and he's excommunicated. And uh, he seemingly goes and lives in exile, probably in Libya. In about two years later, um, Constantine's sister is healed by Eusebius of and as I already mentioned, Eusebius and Nicomedia is a strong supporter of Arius. And so uh, this puts Eusebius back in Constantine's good standing. And then Eusebius uses this sort of opportunity of being in Constantine's good graces to give Arius an audience with Constantine. And Constantine hears Arius present a creed to Constantine. It's not the Nicene Creed. It's similar, but a little bit different. And Constantine approves of this and decides that Arius is now orthodox and accepts this as sort of an apology and a recantation and that Arius should be now admitted to communion. Um, 
And so there is a council just a couple months later in early 328 AD at Nicomedia, where Eusebius is the bishop. And this council officially um, uh, commands that Alexander, the bishop in Alexandria, readmit Arius to his post as priest in Alexandria after finding him orthodox. And you could be like, why would Constantine do this? I think you have to understand, again, Constantine's main motivation throughout all of this is unity, 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 unity. And so he doesn't want the Arian problem to keep festering. He wants it to go away and to be resolved and for the church to be in unity. And so if that means that Arius has to get readmitted to communion, he would view that as a positive outcome that everyone who had been excommunicated by the council had now found their way back into the church. So Constantine with the church council and Nicomedia are ordering that Arius be put back into his priestly role in Alexandria. Alexander the bishop sends Athanasius, who again, like I mentioned, is Alexander's assistant, to Constantinople to appeal this decision. While Athanasius is away in Constantinople, Alexander dies. Word reaches Athanasius that the bishop has died, and Athanasius immediately sails back to Alexandria. And through means that are a little sketchy, A, Athanasius is likely underage at this point. You have to be 35 or to be a bishop, and it's quite likely that Athanasius is not quite old enough. You will see dates in official church records of Athanasius's birthday that agree with or that disagree with earlier records, likely to make him look old enough to accept this position. And it also seems like he did not gather a full comprehensive gathering of the clergymen in Alexandria to properly do this. He seems to have rushed this to make himself the bishop of Alexandria after Alexander has died. But this leaves Arius in a weird limbo because Constantine had sent a letter to Alexander to reinstate Arius, but Alexander is now dead. And so it seems like this issue sort of leaves Constantine's mind in attention and Arius is left in this weird limbo. And so Arius probably moves back to Libya. So Arius has been declared Orthodox, but Athanasius is not cooperating with the um, command given to Alexander to readmit him. So Arius is left in sort of a weird in-between. Um, four years later, Arius writes a kind, gingerly letter to Constantine, asking him to reconsider his case and order him back into communion. And Constantine can get really mad sometimes if you grab his attention and he doesn't want his attention grabbed. And so he blows up at Arius. He orders all of Arius's writings burnt kind of re-excommunicates him and puts him in exile. And all this time, so Arius is probably continuing to live in Libya, his hometown, uh, while he is now out of favor with Constantine, even though previously he had been back in favor with Constantine. All right, so three years later, Arius, again, there is a council in Jerusalem to um, consecrate a new church uh, in Jerusalem. And Arius presents a creed to Constantine, Constantine, again, finds this creed acceptable and orders Arius be readmitted to his post in Alexandria. At the same council, Athanasius, who is also there, is accused of multiple crimes, including desecrating uh, churches that he disagreed with. He's accused of murder. He's accused of extortion and a whole bunch of different things. Athanasius, I honestly think the best way to think of Athanasius is that he's some sort of thug-like 
mayor of Chicago sort of figure where he tries his best to look good on the outside, but uses a lot of corrupt means that are somewhat unsavory to enforce his rule, kind of hopefully no one is looking. Um, there are a lot of books about Athanasius that agree with this. This isn't just my opinion, that he seems like a somewhat foxy, unsavory character who used violent means in his rule. So Athanasius is accused of all these crimes. Arius is ordered back to his see. Things are looking good for Arius. Athanasius sails to Constantinople to argue this decision straight to Constantine's face. Eusebius sails at the same time to Constantinople, knowing that that's where Athanasius is heading. Eusebius of Caesarea is going to Constantine to make sure that whatever Athanasius says to Constantine is corrected and set straight and that Athanasius is not allowed to uh, appeal this ruling. So there's a scene where Athanasius has landed on the docks and he is talking to Constantine in the city of Constantinople. Like an hour or two later, the boat carrying Eusebius gets there. Athanasius had been starting to persuade Constantine about um, his side of the story. And then Eusebius, who had been holding this uh, big accusation to last, tells Constantine that Athanasius had been threatening to not send grain from Egypt to the Aryan parts of the empire in a way of extorting them to get them to be anti-Aryan. And you see, or, uh, Constantine blows up at this because that's like threatening the oil supply in our modern world or something like that. Egypt was the largest exporter of grain and millions of people relied on that food. And basically Athanasius is threatening huge portions of the empire with starvation if they don't go along with his theology. And so Constantine gets furious at this and banishes Athanasius on the spot to Trier, Germany. So then uh, Constantine is like, look, I need to put this Aryan dispute behind us. We need to get this settled. I thought we solved this at the Council of Nicaea. I thought I solved it afterwards. Like, we just need to get this resolved. This is a festering wound. It's time to bring this to a resolution. So Arius, so Constantine invites Arius to sail with him on the royal yacht to Alexandria. And Constantine's goal is to go to church in Alexandria with Arius and to declare him orthodox and that this whole dispute will finally be over. Because again, Constantine just wants unity. He doesn't totally care who's right between Arius and Athanasius. He just wants a peaceful resolution to this thing. Although I might say that he leans a little bit more in Arius's direction theologically, but um, anyway. So um, when Constantine shows up with Arius, there are huge riots and probably hundreds or thousands of people died. These riots had been instigated by Athanasius and forces loyal to him. So even though Athanasius has been banished to Germany, his minions and his forces loyal to him are doing their darndest to prevent what Constantine is trying to accomplish from happening. So Constantine decides that this situation in Alexandria is just a little bit too hot to handle. So he sails the boat back to Constantinople. He didn't succeed in getting Arius into church in Alexandria. So he decides he's going to do the second best thing, that he's going to take Arius back to Constantinople. And back in Constantinople, Arius recites the full Nicene Creed to Constantine. Um, did Arius do this because Constantine was twisting his arm? Maybe. Did Arius do this because he was willing to bring this violent dispute to an end and he was sick and tired of this violence being done in his name? Maybe. 
did Arius do this because he had had a change of heart and was willing to sign on to the uh, Nicene Creed? Maybe. We don't really know. But in any case, a little known fact of history is that Arius recites the full Nicene Creed, Homo Lucius and all, to Constantine to his face. Constantine, and that was a Saturday. The next day is Sunday. Constantine invites Arius to join him at church in, you know, the big main church in Constantinople uh, the very next day. That night, Arius dies unexpectedly on the toilet due to digestive distress. The anti-Arians claim that this was judgment from God who was preventing the church from being desecrated by this uh, heretic Arius. The Arians suspect, and I have sympathy for them, that this was a poisoning done to prevent Arius from taking communion and that he was basically poisoned by uh, his enemies in Constantinople. So in any case, I think that that story is actually way more interesting than being slapped by Santa Claus. Uh, but uh Arius is, like, what's interesting is there are all these people who write about how Arius had bad ideas, but it's nowhere ever does Arius's own behavior get called into question. Arius was celibate. He was very committed to the ascetic life. Um, he uh, seemingly had perfectly good Christian behavior, because if he had ever set a foot wrong, we would have heard about it from his enemies happy to quickly accuse him. But there are no such accusations. So it seems only like the thing that you can criticize Arius for was having wrong theology and being stubbornly committed to it. Um, but being stubbornly committed to your theology was sort of par for the course in the fourth century. Um, so I think that Arius, well, like I should say, you know, I as a biblical Unitarian, I have sympathy for people who are called heretics and don't subscribe to Trinitarianism, but I don't really dis I don't really agree with Arius's theology myself. I find it a little bit strange and not quite right. And so I don't consider myself a follower of Arius or a supporter of his theological ideas or anything like that. But I do have sympathy for a guy who's willing to stick up for his guns and um and is probably very maligned by history and like honestly the point that i want to close with is as someone who's been sort of i don't know excommunicated called a heretic and treated rather badly by trinitarian christians when i see those memes around christmas time that are sort of making jokes at arius's expense and seemingly celebrating mildly violent behavior against people who you disagree I just don't quite see that as particularly funny, and nor do I see it as particularly Christian. And so I'll, I'll close with this quote. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So did Jesus teach us to slap heretics on the face, or did Jesus teach us how to behave when we were slapped on the face? Was Jesus someone who was trying to get people killed for their theological ideas, or was Jesus who was someone who was killed for blasphemy and heresy accusations in his own day? And I think that the spirit behind the memes that celebrate the slapping of Arius is not loyal and faithful to the teachings and to the ethics and to the beliefs of Jesus. And so I might gently poke my friends who might support those memes to reconsider that. A, 
not historical for the reasons I hope I've supported, but B, perhaps more importantly, because that's just not the way that Christians should behave and not the sort of behavior that we should celebrate and venerate in our heroes. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope you found this uh, educational and insightful.